Next, we come to the loving watchers. Among the faces about the cross, we see those who love Jesus. It has been said, Fidelity, thy name is woman. And so it might have been said of those four women who were not far from the cross. The mother of Jesus was there. Aided by the disciple John, she makes her way through the jeering crowd right to the foot of the cross. Now she knows the meaning of those strange words spoken by Simeon when she took the Christ child to the temple so long ago. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. O mother of mine, forsake me not. To labor and die is my lot. But the day is dark, and the air is chill, and the cross is raised on this lone hill. There is never a one to take my part while the sin and the sorrow break my heart. They have lifted me up against the morn, and the crown they gave has many a thorn. They pierced my hands, and they pierced my feet, gave hatred for love and gall for sweet. Behold, O woman, this son of thine, mother of mine, O mother of mine. And so the sword of sorrow pierced, but Christ's mother was there by her son in his dying hour. Yes, she was there beside the cross. Salome, mother of James and John, was at the cross too and looked on with heartbroken sympathy. Like Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, was the mother of two of Christ's disciples, James the Less and Joseph. Inspired by the faith of her son, she mourned his death on the cross. The third Mary at the cross was the woman who loved much because she'd been forgiven much. Besides these four, there were other women present. The disciple John was there close to the cross, as well as other followers of Jesus called his acquaintances. Was Joseph of Arimathea among them, and Nicodemus? Most likely. All these faces about the cross were faces of love. These watchers did not understand the terrible scene but they loved Jesus. Their faith was tested. Their hope was almost gone, but they loved him. And the greatest of these is love. Next, we come to the blind watchers there. Among the faces about the cross, we notice those who were spiritually blind. Utterly ignorant they were as they watched the supreme event of the ages. To them, it was just another execution. Some took part in it. The four soldiers, no doubt heathen from a foreign land, simply obeyed orders when they drove the nails. Then, tired from their exertions, they sat down and watched him there. The men who caused the most physical agony to our Lord were the least responsible because their knowledge was so small. Father, forgive them, he prayed, for they know not what they do. Men are responsible for the light they have. In James 4, 17, it is written, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In those uncomprehending faces about the cross, we see the millions who have neither love nor faith nor hope. Today as then, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. John 1, 5. But one heart was there at the cross, open to the light of heaven, and one the least expected. Into one face came the light that never was on sea or land. The poor thief said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And there and then had the promise of a place with Christ in paradise. The centurion who was busy with his official duties was there. But when the darkness came down and the rocks ran, and the Savior cried out with a scripture on his lips, he saw the light too and said, Truly this was the Son of God. We come next to the careless watchers. The scripture calls them they that passed by. They took a look, but they didn't stay long. They went on about the little things of life, into the city to buy and sell, into the country to work or visit, 
They were the passing throng. Look at their faces. The interest or curiosity is there. Like Moses, when he saw the bush on fire, they seemed to say, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight. Simon of Cyrene was just passing by when he was drafted. That's the word in the original, drafted, against his own desire to carry the cross. And what at first was a burden became a blessing. Are you, radio friend, just passing by now? Stop a moment and look at your Savior crucified for you. One day early in the 18th century, the artist Stenberg walked through the marketplace and was attracted by the face of a dancing gypsy girl. He invited her to his studio where he used her as a model for his painting, The Dancing Gypsy Girl. The little girl was much impressed with what she saw there and watched with interest as the great artist worked on his painting of the crucifixion. One day she said to Stenberg, he must have been a very bad man to have been nailed to a cross. No, the artist said he was a good man, the best man that ever lived. In fact, he died for all men. Did he die for you, asked the girl in simplicity. This pointed question pierced the artist's heart, for he had not surrendered to Christ. Soon after this, he chanced to attend a meeting of the reformers and was converted. Then he went back to work on his painting of the crucifixion, not only with the skill of an artist, but with the love of a believer in Christ. When the masterpiece was completed, it was hung in the great art gallery at Dusseldorf. One day, a young German count wandering through the gallery paused before Stenberg's crucifixion. He seemed frozen to the spot. He looked and looked again, and what he saw moved him greatly. Then he noticed the words written under the painting, All this I did for thee, what hast thou done for me? A great change came over the young nobleman, and Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, for such it was, went forth to found that noble missionary brotherhood of the Moravians who have carried the gospel to many lands. And so we say to you, What hast thou done for me? I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransom me, and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given? come to the mob watchers, those other faces about the cross, angry, distorted faces, the faces of the mob, people who follow a multitude to do evil, as we read in Exodus 23, 2, to do evil or to do good, the mob-minded people. 
They're swayed by the spirit of the times or of the hour or of the moment. About a week before, the crowd had shouted, Hosanna in the highest, as Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. But now they cry, Crucify him! And they mock him upon the cross. No doubt many of the same people who were in that crowd singing hosannas were now in this mob, crying crucify. How often has it been sadly true that a crowd swayed by strong leaders will do what they would never do as individuals. As you pray in these latter days, think of those faces about the cross. Our whole world was there. In those faces of hate, of love, of blind indifference, of careless curiosity, and of popular emotion, we behold the attitude of everyone in this old world as we all gather about the cross of Christ. But where do we belong? What sort of face is yours? What sort of face is mine? Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. John 21, 32. Oh, radio friend, may God help us to respond to the love of our Savior who died for us and who with loving kindness draws us to himself as we find ourselves among those faces about the cross. Kneel at the cross, Christ will meet you there. Come while he waits for you. List to his voice, leave with him your care, and life begin anew. Kneel at the cross, kneel at the cross, leave every care. Oh, say to the 
unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Chapel or a storm. Moody, the mighty evangelist, was converted in the rear of a shoe store holding with Christ's love. Dr. Torrey was converted while alone in a hotel room at night. Converted under fire. Sailors, airmen have been converted on rafts in mid-ocean. Infidels have been converted. Even ministers have been converted. All sorts of people have been converted, yet you can hardly find two who will describe their experience alike. But the real proof of conversion is the actual change of life that's evident to everyone. It's the old orchard test, as the scripture says, ye shall know them by their fruits. The fourth new thing that all of us need and find when we turn to God is regeneration. That's the new birth. 
and by it we receive a change of nature, a new heart from God. What did Jesus say about this? We read it here in John 3, 5. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul says that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, Titus 3, 4. And here is God's promise to give us this new nature, or new heart as he calls it in Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Oh, that's what we need today, new hearts. Culture, education, science, these are good, but not good enough. The president of a great university looks at the world about us and says that education is not a sure hope, but it's our only hope. But radio friends, it will require more than education. The selfish hearts of men must be changed. They need a new nature, a regeneration, and this can come only from God. A man moved on to an old farm and went to the pump for a bucket of water. But the next door neighbor was there and said, Look here, friend, that water's not safe. The family who lived here before used it and poisoned all of them. Is that so, replied the man. I'm glad you told me. I'll soon make it safe. I have a remedy. So he went out to his truck and got a big bucket of white paint and painted the pump. He putted up all the cracks and had a fine-looking job. Then he said, now nah, I'm sure it's all right. It looks good. But we know he was a fool to paint the pump when the water was bad. A fool to think he could change the water by painting the pump. So it is with every single one of us. We must be chained inside, regenerated, born again spiritually before that part of the world which we influence can be as it ought to be. Make the fountain good and the stream will be good. When God gives us a new heart, everything will be new. For out of the heart are the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23 tells us. The fifth new thing is adoption, a change of family, a new relationship to God. Once we were children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3, but now we have something new. We are sons of God by faith. Listen to this from John 1.12. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If men ever needed this new power, this privilege, they need it today. But how can they have it? How can we have it? The answer is here in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You see, this adoption to the family of God centers in the cross, and all the pooled intellect and energy of the entire human race will not accomplish it. Deny, reject, forget, ignore the cross, and there's no sonship with God, for we are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me pure within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as Sing, 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All oh, precious is the sanctification, a change of service, a new separation to God. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. In sanctification, it's imparted to us. By his Spirit, Christ dwells within our hearts. We are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, 2 Peter 3.18. What does sanctification lead us to do? It leads us to holy obedience. Any so-called sanctification which exists in mere feeling does not reach the Bible standard. In 1 Peter 1, 2, the Apostle speaks of sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. And, of course, this goes along with the true belief. For we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, that God has chosen his people to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So, you see, this new thing leads to belief and obedience. The seventh and last new thing is holiness a change of likeness, a new character like God, without which no man shall see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. The word holy is akin to W-H-O-L-L-Y. And this text shows that if Christians are to be entirely in God's hands, they are to be holy His. Some people are willing to live for God one day a week, but live for everything else the other six days. This is not holiness, no matter what claims are made for the story is told of an old Saxon warrior who came to unite with the church. But when he was baptized, held up his right hand out of the water and told his entire body must be buried, he replied that he would keep that hand to himself for battle with his enemies. There are far too many professed Christians who reserve some part of their life when they make their consecration to God. It's true. Salvation is ours by grace through faith, as we read in Ephesians 2.8. But the real evidence that we have been born again as children of God is a changed life. A life of purity and separation from our former wrong ways of life is the evidence called for. We may make all the claims we wish, talk about salvation, pray about it, sing about it, but unless we turn away from dishonesty, impurity of life, falsehood, hatred, and all the popular and unpopular enemies of God and of good, there is no reality to our claims. We are not yet wholly surrendered to God. We do not have these seven new things. It is written in James 4.4 4, that whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We can't be on both sides of the fence at the same time. When Faraday, the great chemist, was a boy, he sold newspapers for a living. One day as he was waiting outside the office of an Edinburgh paper for the morning edition, he put his head and arms through the railing of the iron gate. As he was a born philosopher, he began to wonder on which side of the railing he was. My head and my hands are on one side, and my heart and body are on the other side, he said to himself. Just then the gate was suddenly opened before he had time to get himself all on one side. And the wrench he received taught him, as he said in later life, that all true work requires head, heart, and hands to be on the same side. 
If we are to follow that holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, we must make a full surrender to God and serve him from the heart. We must be entirely spirit, soul, and body on God's side. So these seven new and wonderful things for everyone who really wants them may be had by faith. Justification, a new standing before God. Repentance, a new mind about God. Conversion, a new life for God. Regeneration, a new heart from God. Adoption, a new relationship with God. Sanctification, a new separation to God. Holiness, a new character like God. In Christ our Savior, may these seven new things be gloriously yours and mine. There's a Savior who stands at the door of your heart. He is longing to enter. Why let him depart? He has patiently called you so often before, but you Loving and kind, full of infinite grace. In your heart, in your life, will you give him a place? He is waiting to bless you, your soul to restore. But you must open the door. He will lead you at last to that blessed abode, to the city of God at the end. Night never calls when life's journey is over, but you must open the door. You must open the door. You must open the door. When Jesus comes in, he will faith in God, on land or on the sea. Have faith in God, wherever you may be. Have faith in God. He cares for you and me. Have faith, dear friend, in God.
keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Oh.